Welcome to another episode of Open Mic. I'm Mike Morse with Kevin Dietz. Today, we have Ned Timmons, a former FBI agent, a former Oak Park police officer, someone who almost single-handedly started the chain to bring down Manuel Noriega. You're not going to want to miss this episode, so stay tuned. Joining us this morning is Mike Morse, Detroit's top 30. Mike Morse. Mike Morse is in here to tell us about the backpack giveaway. We are adapted, adapted, and change things up a little bit every year. Hi, I'm Mike Morse. Welcome to another episode of Open Mic with Kevin Dietz. And today, I'm very happy to have Ned Timmons on the show. Welcome, Ned. Thank you. Ned is a former FBI agent, and he's got a really interesting past that I'm going to let him tell you all about. So let's turn to you. Thanks for being here today. Um, so tell us, you grew up in Michigan. Yes, sir. Where, what part of Michigan? By Freeland, between Saginaw and Midland. Okay, so not too far. No. Hour and a half away, about? Yeah. And you you went to school up there. Where'd you go to college? Hillsdale in Michigan State. Nice. And then you entered the police force? After Hillsdale, was at the peak of Vietnam, and so, you know, your number was up, and I volunteered for the draft and uh, went to Korea with the CID, uh, 2nd Infantry Division. Uh, that's a criminal investigating detachment of the Army. Okay. And I spent 13 months in Korea, three years in the Army, and got out and went to work for Oak Park Police. Korea. That's a yes. war you don't hear much about these days. I don't know much about, can you tell me about the Korea War, Korean War in about a minute or less? Well, right now it's just, uh, it's like a cold war over there. Uh, you got North Korea on, on one side of a line and South Korea. Well, now the, I know what it is, but back then, what were you doing? Well, what? they, you know, we were always on alert. Um, you, you never knew when uh, something was, some point of tension was going to blow up and something was going to happen. They were always threatening to fire missiles in. They had, we had a lot of infiltrators coming in at night, and their goal was to spread uh, drugs uh, amongst the bar girls who would then disseminate them to the American soldiers. And we ended up with over, while well, I was there, we ended up with over 10,000 soldiers in Camp Zama, Japan, for uh, dry out and drug overdose problems. So it was, it was like a sabotage, you know, it was, they would smuggle the drugs across the DMZ at night. But that's what the war was about? Well, no, it was, it was the ongoing... Conflict. Conflict. So you were there for the ongoing conflict. Yes. Where were you, where, which side were you stationed on? Where were we stationed? In the south, right? The <laughs> south, yeah. Right, you're not allowed yeah. in the north. No, no, you're not allowed in the north. See, that's I, a, I that's know a something. Big, that was during the Vietnam War. That's a big right. problem. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. So you came back safe and yes. you decided to go into the Oak Park police department yes um what year was that that would have been uh about 72 or three right in there and at that time oak park was the highest paying law enforcement agency in michigan so my dad went to oak park high school it feels like it comes up on our I podcast really keep, i know it keeps coming at back at least 50 percent of the time um i'm in oak park often i live right near there i was mm -hmm. born in oak park my mm -hmm. first five years of my life was in oak park they got great Pizza in Oak Park, the Primo's Pizza on Nine Mile. That was there I, when you were there. I know them very well, and they own Valari Restaurant now over in uh, Wixom. Okay, that and I didn't also, know. And they also have a carryout place over there. But how good is the pizza excellent. on Nine Mile? Oh, Primo's excellent. Pizza. Think about uh, sponsoring our show, Primo's Pizza <laughs> on Nine Mile. <laughs> You're uh, probably still a little too young to be getting in trouble from him as an officer in 73. I was uh, six. Yeah, probably. They, uh, we ate. Two or three times a week, the guys would order from Primo's. That's so funny. Yeah. 
Um, I know some, I know I've met the people who are uh, running it, owning it now. Nice, nice people. Mm -hmm. Good, good, good food. But so you had a good, you had a good experience in Oak Park, probably safe time to be in Oak Park back then. Yeah, we had a lot of action. You know, we were police, fire and rescue, and that's why we were paid premium. Uh, We did all three. Wow. And uh, there there was enough going on with stolen cars and break-ins and holdups and, you know, kept you interested. Okay. And then I see here you went to the FBI after that. Yeah, while I was at Oak Park, I got a master's out of Michigan State, going to night school. And uh, then finally, in 81, I got an appointment to the FBI Academy. Wow. What? Oh, I don't know what that means, an appointment. Well, you go through a grueling multi-year uh, scrutiny of your background and polygraphs and, and everything else. And, oh, wow. And finally, you know, you get word, if you're lucky, you get word that uh, they're going to take you into a class. And they did? And you, and you, and did. you, and you got your badge? There you go. That's exciting. Yeah. And so tell us about, tell us what it's like to be an FBI agent and, and what kind of work you did. Well, they gave me a lot of latitude, I think, because I'd been in the military and with the police. And I started out with uh, bank robbers and fugitives. And uh, on that squad, I ended up uh, catching a motorcycle gang fugitive uh, who had been on the run for over five years. How did you catch him? Uh, put a gun to his head and walked him out of a bar out north, uh, east side of Detroit. Was it, uh, was it, were you at the bar having a drink and you saw him or did somebody give you a tip that he was there? No, we got a tip that he was there, but our, the picture we had of him was like five years old. Could have happened either way though, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. You kind of look like you could be in a motorcycle yeah. bar. What yeah. was, are you allowed to say his name or would I know his name or is the name irrelevant? Um, I'd rather not use his name. Fine. He's dead, but. Fine. Anyways. Um, so you, you put a gun to his head. How much backup did you have when you put a gun to somebody's head like that? I had one guy with me. So that's and, the old days. And now had, these days they'd have 30 guys. Yeah, right? They'd yeah. just storm it you in. Know, yeah. You're like an old oh. school FBI agent. I'm guessing he probably had a gun too. Uh, he or did. one nearby. Yeah. You know. uh, and the bar was full of bikers. And uh, so we walked him out of there and we got, to, uh, we got to our car that was out in the parking lot with him. And before cell phones you know so um my partner got to the phone booth and dialed 911 for the cavalry and because the all the bikers start coming around the edge of the bar with guns you could see shotguns and long rifles and and uh so we got i got him between the rest of the bikers and me my phone my partner was on the phone to 911 and they were moving in on us and and uh my partner had just come from law school and he had a uh, chief special five shot snub nose 38 and these guys have all got pump shotguns and whatever long that doesn't seem like a good fight a fair fight no so what happened well in the distance in the mist i could see a state trooper coming with that red light and it was like the most exhilarating Exciting sound, red siren, light. The siren was coming, and the, you know, and there was a couple blue lights coming behind them, and uh, the other side decided uh, they were going to be outnumbered real fast, so they backed off. They backed off. Yeah, and, and you got your man. We got him. Yeah. And did something special happen with this particular arrest that changed the history of the world? Well, it did. We worked with this guy. He had no choice. He'd done time in seven federal penitentiaries. And he was going back for habitual offender plus 
he had charges for guns and, and uh, bombs down in Kentucky. And so we had him over the barrel, just so to speak. And he ended up introducing me to another biker that was in trouble. And, and we climbed a ladder, and, and eventually we uh, were introduced, or I was introduced, to an individual that played a major role in, in this drug cartel operating out of the Cayman Islands. We started placing phone numbers together, phone records and calls and travel, and decided to move on this third biker that was connected to the Cayman cartel. But, but get, bring me to a, what point, period of time are we talking about? 70s, 80s? We're talking about uh, 83, 84. Okay. I was still in high school, but uh, keep going. So, so you, war on drugs has blown up at this point, right? This is uh, yeah. crack cocaine is kind of starting to go crazy. Yeah. Uh, 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 marijuana is still illegal, and there's huge shipments um, going back and forth. But mostly, probably cocaine, I would imagine, right? Uh, actually, these guys were mostly the weed, mm-hmm. uh, and they would do shrimp boat loads of forty to sixty thousand pounds. They would do barges, anyways, from one hundred and thirty to five hundred thousand pounds. But they would always throw in a couple thousand kilos of coke. What what kind of street value is that? Lots, millions, lots, hundreds of millions, hundreds. Yeah. Of so, millions. but the boats were going from where to where? They were going from Colombia. They'd go to Colombia to Panama, and then pa- they'd wait in, until they decided whether to shoot them up to Louisiana or the Carolinas, and that was based on where the AWACS were flying and, and where the Coast Guard cutters were. And all that intelligence would come back to the drug cartels. And based on that intel, they would decide which way they were going to run the barges or the shrimpers to try to get them into the U.S. And then from whatever port they got into, it would, you know, get to Detroit and get to wherever. All the drugs were exclusively transported on 8 Mile Road to Detroit in a construction site there. And then shipped throughout the country from there? I'm confused. It went from Colombia to Panama, Panama to a port on the probably the southern coast of the United States. Yeah, southern or eastern, yeah. And then it got, and then how to get from there to Eight Mile? Tractor trailers. So they'd have, you got to have a lot of tractor trailers to pull that kind of weight. They did. They got them from the Teamsters. So you're talking dozens of trucks? You're, you're talking uh, 30,000, 40,000 pounds a truck. And uh, they were a load they called the Bulldog had 300,000 pounds. Uh, they got a master blaster load that had 500,000 pounds. Uh, they had another one they were planning with a million pounds. One uh, truck? No, no, barge. Oh, one barges. barge. Yeah. So the barges load up into the, 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 the Teamsters trucks. The yeah. Teamsters trucks bring them to 8 Mile. Right. And where on 8 Mile do they go? They went to Waterway Construction which is 8 Mile. Which is where? 8 and what? Um, like eight and Lasher area. That's not far from I, here. I, I we're talking three miles <laughs> from where we're sitting right now. Yeah, and they were bringing in hundreds of thousands of pounds. So were they going to any other city in the United States or just Detroit? No, they would distribute it to Los Angeles, New York, Texas, Colorado. Okay, so we weren't special. We were, we were a shipping hub. A safe landing site. Yeah. So why do you think they picked Detroit as one of the few safe landing sites they needed a warehouse and they uh had some connections in detroit with uh, a major distributor in the organization and so he was more comfortable to bring it 
in the drug organization. Yeah, to bring it to Detroit and then distribute it out from there. Did any Teamsters ever get in trouble for carrying drugs for him? Yes. Anybody we know or anybody we heard of? Probably not. Okay. But, but okay, so all these drugs, hundreds of thousands of pounds of drugs are coming to eight, this eight mile, and then what is it, and then from there, it gets distributed around the country? Yes. Okay. So you, you un- helped uncover this operation? Yes. Yeah, I worked five years on it. And then, and so take us through some of the, you know, how, how, I mean, it's, these are very big numbers and it's a, so it's a crazy story. I don't know how to. It's as big of a marijuana drug operation as you've ever seen. I mean, right. that we, yeah, that's ever been reported on. So what happened? Well, at the same time as, as these uh, barges and shrimp boats were coming in, they had an aviation wing and these were the same pilots who were flying for Ali North in the Contra deal. And they, we had one pilot that we could prove he flew to over 200 flights into Michigan um, of drugs from Columbia nonstop to Michigan. Okay. You proved that and then got him arrested and got him convicted? Well, we made our move to go into the Caymans. And as far as I know, it was the first time they had an FBI agent work undercover offshore. That's CIA turf or DEA. But... Uh, you know, the source was willing to introduce me as a cousin. And so, he, you know, he was destined for witness security. But he introduced me into the Cayman Islands. It was a good time. They had lost a couple people, key people in the drug organization. So you were undercover as a potential drug dealer? As a security specialist. To work for the drug dealers? Yeah. And so it was just you alone? Yes, so what was your day-to-day like? Yeah. <laughs> so what did you do? Did you go scuba diving in the Cayman no. Islands? Tell me, I mean, no, what, it, does that, what does that look like? Your undercover security specialist for the drug dealers. I mean, take me through your days. Well, you know, it, it's stressful. And you, um, you know, you'd be up because you're nervous. You're not sleeping in. You're, you're up 7, 8 o'clock in the morning and having a coffee. And there was a lot of other people involved that would come and go and whatever. And the, the particular guy that I worked for owned a club down there. And uh, he would uh, get a lot of business off the cruise ships. Uh, in other words, he'd advertise about a, you know, a, a Caribbean barbecue and had Jamaican cooks and everything. And so you would have a lot of people from the cruise ship coming in. But they were also using that because his employees had to go on and off the cruise ships. So when they did that, they would take footlockers of money that was destined for Panama. But we had money down there. We had uh, pallets of hundreds that was five foot by five foot by five foot. And uh, the money was so abundant that we had to go to weighing the money. It would burn the engines up in money counting machines. I've seen movies. I've seen shows like Narcos. That, that, uh, that, that, I mean, I remember the pallets and they burned right. them. There's a movie where they burn all this money just because they can. I mean, this is, I mean, so you lived through some, some of the stuff that we've all been watching on TV and Netflix. I did, yeah. And so in the Caymans, you're working for this guy for, how long did it take to gain his trust and to, to be, you know, inside? I, I was around a couple of weeks with him and we hit it off and uh, he still talks to me every day or every, every week. So, um, so this person was never brought down. Yeah, yeah, he went to prison. He did. Yeah, for how long? Uh, he did ten years because he testified against Noriega. And 
so you, I mean, without backup on the island, right? I mean, you right. single-handedly uh, infiltrated this guy. Uh, are we allowed to know his name? Um, his name was Lee Rich. Okay. And he pled guilty, served, he served about 10 years. But he agreed to testify for the Kerry Commission. And that was what built the evidence uh, that it took to, to turn the tide to go ahead and okay the invasion of Panama and to take down Noriega. Which he is, and several other smugglers. Which is huge. Yeah, you'd say that. Uh, and that was in the, the late 80s, 88-ish? Yeah, in there. And um, so what was the connection? I mean, what was Noriega do? What, what, refresh our memories. What... I mean, I know he was a bad guy. And from, I a media a guy. from a media standpoint at that time, I mean, it was in all the papers, all the networks were covering sure. this thing. They're like, is Noriega helping uh, ship drugs into the United States? And, and he was, of course, denying it. And there's some allegations that Reagan was maybe too soft in, in allowing shipments for, to, to go back and forth, right? Uh, Nor, Noriega was uh, able to protect drug dealers coming in now those were the allegations that's what everyone was talking about and that and, and when these indictments came down everybody was like oh we're gonna finally find out uh you know what the real who the real players are in the war on drugs and and it might just be the government i mean it was kind of this whole huge massive media circus so what was it i mean what well, was noriega doing you had you had many factors going on now one these pilots that were involved in this organization they were flying for Ali North to, uh, to supply the Contras. And during the course of this undercover project, we developed information that the same pilots that were flying the guns and weapons into the Contras, were, what they were actually doing was they would load up with the weapons either in New Orleans or Miami or wherever they got loaded up. They would head, uh, head for the Contras would be in Honduras or wherever the meeting was. We found out that they were actually diverting to San Andreas, a, a Colombian island off the coast of Nicaragua. They would unload the weapons there and load up with air conditioners, blue jeans, washers, dryers, appliances they could sell. And the generals wanted to make money in the black market. They did not, as it was told to me later by one of the concubines for the Genesis, they didn't want to be in the jungle fighting. They wanted to sell air conditioners and appliances and make money. So this group of pilots from our drug organization would drop all the weapons in San Andreas, load up with all the air conditioners and TVs and appliances, fly those in. The generals would sign off that they got the weapons. And then on the way out, they would stop in San Andreas again load up with the drugs that were, were payment for the weapons by the cartels and fly the drugs into the U.S. They came in under the nose of customs because it was a CIA operation and they weren't allowed to search the planes. But allegedly the CIA didn't know any of this. Allegedly, but you <laughs> got to go back to another angle on this that Noriega was a source for the CIA. I remember He's that. dead. Yeah. Okay. Noriega was the connection to um, Castro and Castro to the Russians. So there was a lot of tension in the undercover project because the CIA didn't want us to take down Noriega. So 
you had to watch your back, so to say. Um, CIA is interested in their global objectives or whatever, but you know they wanted to protect Noriega because he was their man into Castro. So another problem. And of course, Pablo Escobar is running around trying to grow his drug organization in this circle as well, who's, who's kind of a dangerous guy. Yeah. Well, the people who have seen the Narcos popular show on Netflix, that's this time. Yes, that's right? exactly I mean, that's that in, time. That's in, Pan- it's in Panama. Right. They were, the first season, they, I, I mean, you were involved in explosions at a hotel, right? Uh, I mean, that was all part of this effort, right? After the FBI, I went to uh, Colombia as a private contractor. The sources that I had developed were Colombians, and they were polygraphed by the CIA and deemed loyal to me. So I went into Colombia for a project. The trouble was I walked right into the drug wars. And that was a, a situation where the Colombian government had finally knuckled under the U.S. government and agreed to endorse extradition. In other words, they were going to allow fugitives, Colombians that were Colombian citizens that were fugitives from U.S. indictments to be extradited. Well, Pablo and Rivas Gacha and other uh, Colombians got together and they basically blew up the country. They were blowing up everything. I was in the Cartagena Hilton when they blew that up. I was in the Prada Hotel when they put a car bomb at the front door. And a couple months later, I was in a restaurant in Barranquilla and they blew that restaurant up. Uh, there was shooting every night. There was bombing every night. And it, w- it was a violent time. How did you, how, I mean, you have nine lives? I mean, how do you <laughs> Sounds like they were targeting you, Ned. Sounds like, it does sound like a, a, shoot, a narco <laughs> show, because there's lots of gun Car bombs. And, and car bombs and yeah, stuff. Yeah, the, the politicians traveled with uh, uh, their own medical units. They would travel with doctors, their own blood, and a team of nurses, because so many of them were getting shot. That's crazy. It was crazy, yeah. So you went over there just you went over there as a private citizen to make money and I, to and you know, this is your business. You wanted to help security. I went as a private security. contractor. Private contractor. For security purposes. Yeah, you can't go in as a sworn agent because you have to tell the government who you are, where you are, where you're staying, what you're doing. Well you were retired at that point. True. I, I left early, yeah. and took this job. You left the FBI early to become a private contractor over yeah. there. Yeah. And a private contractor means you're, You're tr- not there. You don't have to follow the rules. <laughs> yeah. I'm confused. Well, government so, officials, you know, if you go in. As I understand, but he was still working for the government? Uh, as a contractor. Yeah. <laughs> so they didn't have, yeah. it's like a oh, layer of see, protection. I lost that. That, well, that went over like my a, head. Yeah, so you so. didn't go over there to make money. I mean, you weren't oh, no. a private, I, I got confused. You didn't go over there because now you're a private contractor too, uh, protecting people and, and doing yeah covert stuff for them. But then you were still working for the government, but you weren't a sworn FBI agent because then you could fly under the radar and right. infiltrate whatever you needed to infiltrate. Right. Did I say that right? Not bad. Kinda? Not bad yeah. for an attorney. Right. <laughs> what, what strikes me is, uh, so, you, I mean, I'll take you all the way back to like the motorcycle guy in Detroit, right? So so you, you get this bus and you think, wow, this is a great bus. This guy's doing a lot of drugs in Detroit or whatever. But then he's able to turn you over to another guy and another guy. And all of a sudden you're in the Caymans in this massive boatloads of, of weed getting shipped to Detroit. And then, but that's not, but that's not all. There's right. more, you know, there's still Noriega behind that. And and I, we were talking before off camera, you were saying like, you didn't know, yeah, in, in the conscious, but, but you, 
like you didn't even know they were talking about Noriega because they were calling him Pineapple Face or whatever. Right. And and you're just like it's like every day there's this like new door opening of that that making this a bigger and bigger case. I mean, I, I think it's pro probably still today the biggest drug enforcement investigation of all time. Well, what you, what was unique was that once the main guy in Cayman endorsed me, then all the other satellite people that were bringing in small loads. 500 keys of coke, 1,000 keys, 250 keys, uh, 1,000 pounds of weed, wanted to get to me. And we had undercover phones and everything. And Wanted to get to you for what? To help. To help, help bring the loads in. To the United States. Right. He was a trusted security guy Got for it. the drug dealers. So, so they wanted to work with him because he was successful. But you don't have phones at this point, or you do have phones. Like, how are you getting your information? Hard, hardwire phones. You'd leave a number where you could be reached. So are you taking pictures of what you're seeing? Oh, we, we had at Steinbrother, Steinbrenner's Hotel in Tampa, we had three or four rooms wired. In other words, with pinhole cameras, um, audio, video, the works, and we'd set up the meetings at that hotel. And we literally would have people waiting in the lot to come in because we were so busy. Wait, wait, wait. So you left the Caymans to go to Tampa. Yeah. During this time. Yes. And you were security, so your boss would be there with you? No, I, I was. You took care of it for your boss? Yeah. So you met with the drug, all these other drug dealers? Yeah. And what were you doing? Were you negotiating prices, negotiating sales? Yeah, price and cost. You know, they wanted people killed, and, and uh, you know, we, we had cost, you know, to eliminate people. and Logistics. Yeah. And, well, uh, did you participate in that? And, and we and didn't kill anybody. No. You didn't kill anybody. <laughs> no. Not that he'll tell me on my podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but wait a minute. So, so, but you're facilitating uh, drug sales. Those those drugs actually did probably get into the market. Some of them. No, we took them all down. Eve, Eve, but didn't it take? Didn't you know? On the TV shows I watch, uh, the FBI has to at least, you know. Show, do, show some due diligence for the drug dealers to get some drugs on the market, and then eventually they make the big bust. You're saying that, that even the smaller loads, you didn't let anything go? No, we took them all down. And they didn't, find, they didn't ever look at you and say, hey, there's gotta we, be a rat in this organization? We always found a way to lay it back on them that somebody in their organization leaked it. And how, and how long did this operation last? I mean, how many months or days or weeks were you, you know, Playing, playing this double-sided double, well, double -sided thing. I was in Cayman in May of 85 and uh, July of 85, and then back and forth. And then we probably did a year of this um, hocus-pocus with meeting with other drug dealers and recording them all, videotaping them all, and taking down payments to bring in loads of drugs. In other words, we would control like an offload hole, they call it, which would control the, the site that they wanted to land a ship or a sailboat or whatever for a shrimp boat load whatever it may be of, of drugs so you told them it's safe come they came yeah. you arrested them took the drugs well we'd always have some story that, that they swallowed that yeah, but you if, they, if i were them i would say yeah. this guy is not very successful <laughs> this security guy every deal that he puts together <laughs> doesn't there's make a problem yeah. yeah screw this guy yeah. well they're getting, they're, I, they're I, getting their money i take it were you guys sending money back? No, we had to turn all the money into the FBI. Wait, hmm. so is, that, is it all the money? <laughs> oh, wait a minute. All right. You could tell me that off camera, but okay. no. Um, but none of, I mean, it, it's, it, it's surprising the word didn't get back that this was not a successful situation. I'm stuck on that. 
or that you're able to get all the way up to Noriega um, that well, quickly? It was it was going fast, very rapid, and we pulled it off. That's all I can say. You know? Which is an amazing story. I was just trying to. So how how did it tie back to Noriega? Was he just a terrible, terrible dude? And was he in charge of the? I mean, not charge. Was he? Um, you know, how, what kind of fingers did he have in the drugs? Well, the, this organization had, uh, had a house over in Farmington Hills where they uh, counted the money on Farmington Road. Which organization? The Cayman organization. The Cayman organization, which isn't the Noriega, Noriega organization. Yes, or it is the all Noriega. of one, yeah. It's, all of, it's the same thing. Right. In Farmington Hills. I grew yeah. up. I had. I went to high school in Farmington Hills. Could have go. been. Could have been a neighbor. <laughs> you could have been a counter. I could. I. I could have been a counter. Yeah. I, they probably paid better than my waiting table jobs. <laughs> so um, keep going though. So they I, would uh, load the money up in boxes and they'd fly it out of Willow Run Airport, nonstop into the Cayman Islands, right to the windows, loaded with money. And uh, the the U.S. was putting pressure on the Cayman banks at that time to account for money and the Caymans felt the pressure and it was becoming harder and harder to bring in hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars into the Cayman banks. Cayman is the seventh largest banking center in the world, counting New York, Hong Kong, et cetera. Their banks couldn't handle the money they were bringing in. So they had to look for another avenue to clean their money or put it someplace. And uh, they developed a contact with a colonel that worked for Noriega and he introduced them to the general. They went, flew down with uh, briefcases full of money for Noriega, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and he agreed to take care of them. And uh, the smugglers had a really nice uh, G2 jet, and Reagan was hosting the Say No to Drugs conference at, at the White House, and Noriega was invited, of course, they invited all the Latins. Well, his jet wasn't nice enough to show up with the other presidents. So he borrowed the smuggler's jet to fly to the Say No at the Drugs conference. A little irony there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And nobody picked up on it. And nobody picked up on it. And I had pictures of the other smugglers, the pilots who were flying for Ali, in the White House with Reagan, with Nancy Reagan, holding their dog. And so there was definitely a security breakdown there. How come this guy hasn't had a TV show made about him yet? I know, I know. He uh, we could produce it. We should. And ultimately, uh, you know, between the, the planes and the ships and the trucks and all of that, they uh, indicted and convicted 300 people and as a result. Uh, yeah, 300 convictions as a result of what started with this motorcycle guy. I mean, do you, <laughs> is that true? I mean, you really think that, that had you not arrested that guy at that motorcycle bar in Detroit, um, the, the story you told us at the beginning of this show that none of this would have happened, that Noriega would, would never have been gotten caught. Well, it probably would have been another way, but, but I mean, this was yeah. the, in your this experience, was the this, trail. this was the impetus. Yeah. This is yeah. what led you to the yeah. Caymans, what led you to Noriega. Yeah. And were you part of, I mean, were you still active when they invaded Panama in 88? Um, yeah, I, I left in 89. Did you, participate in the invasion no no i did there were smugglers that had escaped to panama that were in panama that called me and provided me information where noriega was that i forwarded to the military because the smugglers knew where he was hiding in a church way out 
on the outskirts of town. And they found them. Yeah. But this organization in Cayman was so cautious. You know, we, we went in there originally to sweep their facilities. In other words, look for bugs and everything. And I had all that equipment with me. And uh, they wouldn't let, uh, if you had a girlfriend or a wife or whatever, you could not bring her to Cayman. Because I always figured somebody's going to get divorced, the girls are going to talk, somebody's going to get in an argument with a girlfriend, and she's going to know too much. So to entertain the boys, they had a contact with a uh, certain therapeutic assistant in Tampa. And they would send the jet and fly down 10 to 12 of the most beautiful girls in the world uh, to the Caymans to party. And you weren't allowed to know anybody's name, nothing they were strictly there for physical therapy so physical therapy. so one day <laughs> I got tasked to pay the bill um, in Tampa for the physical therapist for the therapist yeah okay so while you were in Tampa no I, well, I was back in Cayman okay. they sent me from Cayman to Tampa with two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to pick up to pay to take care of the bill that's a lot of money for physical therapy. And they were good. <laughs> <laughs> they so were to worth speak, it. okay. The, not that you would know. <laughs> no, but I got If you had to know they were worth $250,000, is this a day, just, a week? Just from looking, yeah. Uh, How long I were was, they down there? I was very careful never to partake because I didn't want to be sitting on the stand and have it come up. So I always came up with an excuse that I had to do something. So who paid that bill? Where'd that money come from, the two hundred fifty grand? Some me. pallet sitting around so, in some yeah, garage, sure, right. Farmington Hills. Yeah, yeah. No. How, I, I mean, how much money? What do you think the most amount of money you saw at a single time? Uh, I saw a pallet that was five by five by five. Uh, that was all U.S. hundreds. What do you? What would you guess that might be? Any I had idea? no idea. I didn't know. Enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are some crazy. Crazy stories. So, yeah. I mean, are there any, you know, I, I mentioned Narcos, you told me off camera, you, you, you haven't seen the full series. Is there, is there a show, a movie right now, if people were wanted to, if people wanted to get more information, wanted to see documentaries or, or just even um, other types of TV shows or movies, is there anything out there that really does a good job of depicting what you went through and what um, happened during the, the mid and late eighties? Um, I don't know. I heard that Tom Cruise made in America or something was pretty good. Okay. Um, you know, I knew some of the people that they portrayed in there. I knew Barry Seals. And that was the pilot part of it, right? That's yeah. where they're flying the drugs in yeah. and the money yeah. back. There's a, there's a select crew of mercenary pilots. And ironically, the, these are um, descendants of Air America from Vietnam that were smuggling the heroin. And uh, How much money do those guys make, the pilots? Oh, I don't know. It was pretty secretive. I, I don't know. But what were they paying you? Pretty dangerous work. They had to be paying you something as a security just, expert. There was a box of money. I was in a condo, and there was a box of money, and it would be replenished every day. And you just took a handful of whatever you needed for the day. But weren't you getting paid for your services? Is that? Yeah, but it all had to be turned in. You're an honest dude. Yeah, you can get in big trouble. <laughs> so you'd need a good attorney did you ever <laughs> we got that we got you covered did um you ever see even in the, from a distance noriega no oh there was when, when this went down and these guys all lawyered up 
Oh my God. There's attorneys that are still thanking me that, that, uh, cashed in. Oh. Well, the attorneys made a lot of money, Millions. but are you, are, are you ever afraid uh, for your life that any of these people that you helped put away, uh, we're going to come back after you. Most of the top people still talk to me. Why? Um, some kind of bond. I don't know. Uh, I found that with the motorcycle gangs too, that, uh, when you, when you develop a, a relationship, a bond or whatever, even though they go to jail and come out, they still stay in touch with you. So the guy that you told us about from the Caymans who did 10 years, you gave us his name. You told me that he, you still talk to him once a week. Yeah. So I, I don't understand that bond. Was, like, he like, stunned, was he stunned to find out you were law enforcement? Yeah. he. You know, I wasn't there when he got arrested. And uh, they took him to uh, Louisiana. And then I flew to Louisiana for something and met him in jail. Yeah. So that's when he found out you were law enforcement. Or does he still not know? <laughs> yeah. No. Um, Maybe he's was a kinda, subscriber. One of our 25,000 subscribers. Because uh, as we became friends in Cayman and built a relationship, um, I saw the stress that he was under and what he was going through. And, and uh, you know, one, one day we're sitting at sunset at his magnificent home on the ocean. And, you know, I said, why don't you just quit, take the money and get out? He just says, they won't let me. The Colombians will kill me. They'll kill my family. The The investors will kill me. You made $4 on a dollar in like 60 days when you invested. And uh, said, the Colombians won't let me stop. And this guy was American? No. He was? Cayman. Cayman. And uh, Where does he live now? What's, I'd what country? Say. State. United um, States, Cayman's. And as, as we talked, you know, uh, he just said, you know, if, if you hadn't arrested me, I'd be dead. So I, that was the only way I could stop oh. is to be arrested. Interesting. Yeah. So you saved his life. So well, he thinks. Maybe. That's, that's, uh, but people were being killed every day at, in, oh, yeah. at this time. Yeah. I mean. Oh, there, there was a massacre in Columbia. So the bottom line is you're not you've not you're not afraid for your life. You haven't been afraid um, that any of these people are going to come back and try to harm you. No. And your company, you still go into these dangerous zones uh, to protect other people now, business people. And- um, yeah, we do Colombia, and uh, we're doing a big project in Venezuela right now, which is just out of control. They're just shooting everybody down there, kidnapping them. They won't even rent you a car because everybody rents a car, they steal it. And uh, so, so somebody, what, what kind of people are, I mean, I, I know you probably can't tell me your clients, but give me a, give me a hypothetical scenario of what you're doing these days in Venezuela. Uh, this is uh, an attorney based in Miami that is dealing with some, some corporation. They're dealing with the Venezuelan government and the oil companies and whatever. And he's going to be in there for on and off for a year. And he wants you to keep him safe. Yeah. How many people does it take to do that down there? Well, we basically pay off the police so that they're on our side. And then I have my people that have worked for me for over 30 years in there that, you know, we'll put them, put a uh, armored car, two bodyguards, and a motorcycle. Do you want to do some law work down That's in Venezuela? Intense. Nope. <laughs> I don't think they have good personal injury laws down in, uh, down in Venezuela. I think I'm sticking around Detroit. Um <laughs> 
That's some interesting stuff. So are you going back and forth personally or are you arranging everything from up here? We arrange everything from up here. Right so now. you're not traveling much? No. Down there? Well, I go to Cayman Monday, but. What are you doing on Cayman to see your boy? Ah, I tricked you. See <laughs> <No>. that? <laughs> He's yeah. not there. Uh huh. No. Sure. No, we're working What's... on the podcast. Oh, yeah. So tell us about the podcast. What, what's coming up in your future? Okay. Well, we spent, um, I've spent years putting different books together and information on this. And I mean, I've got stacks three feet high of, of different manuscripts. And a uh, accomplished journalist, Jake Halperin, Pulitzer Prize winner and author of many, many books, he was hired by a studio out of Los Angeles called uh, Stowaway Productions. And we've spent a year traveling around interviewing all the smugglers, motorcycle guys that are around, ex-agents that worked on the Noriega case, and wow. and uh, recorded everything. And we'll be in Cayman next week. We've got to do uh, five more interviews of smugglers that are back in Cayman now. And, you know, we take them from the first time they sold drugs to when they got arrested. Why are they, why are they um, talking to you? They like me. I don't know. Well, you're a likable dude, but these are ex-smugglers. Yeah. They're not current smugglers. Not that I know. First of all, so you have not written a book yet. You've not been on, you've not made a movie, TV show, series, nothing yet. No. So yeah, yes, yes. what movies uh, to watch, yeah, to learn about, this. Uh, I, this think, I think they're making it. <laughs> so do we have a name for the podcast yet? It's not out yet, but I'll, I'll get it to you. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, it's going to air April 20th. It's scheduled to go. And is, they're still, the brain trust is still working on it. Is it name. audio, visual? Audio. And do you know what network? You've mentioned the studio, still but you don't right. know the network. All right, we'll get um, that. We'll get that to our people. There's some podcast company that's behind it. I'd have to get it for you. Where but, you get your podcast. Where you get your podcast. But this is fascinating. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm excited to listen to this. Yeah. So. Well, Jake Halpern's the real deal. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. This guy's, you know. But, but I have a question. Ivy League school taught and trained and author and so i i have a question the 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 drug smuggling and the drug business back in the 80s compared to today do you have your finger on the pulse of what's happening today in that world i mean is it is it still happening is it 10 percent of what it was or give me a give me a sense of what's happening today well you know it started um back in the late 70s and early 80s they shipped everything by ship. And the guy behind that was a Colombian named Julio Nasser, Lebanese guy, but Colombian. And he was in charge of all transportation off the north coast of Colombia. You didn't move any drugs without going through him. And then gradually, you know, they started knocking the ships off and stuff, and they went to the air wing. And then they went to cocaine because more money, less weight, quicker and they were you know they were flying nonstop into the u.s they were flying to the bahamas and then into the u.s but then the the u.s got up to speed with the AWACS and with the uh, blimps and everything and now they've kind of gone back to shipping julio's dead by the way but uh you know the, these guys were so sophisticated that they would take, you know, the AWACS were based out of La Guaya, Venezuela at that time. They would take some of the most beautiful Colombian women, which are unbelievable, and place them in La Guaya, Venezuela at the bars. 
posing as legal secretaries, nurses, professionals, uh, dressed to the nines, and they would keep track of the AWACS pilots. If the pilots were in the bar partying, they would call back and give the okay to fly or take a, take a ship out. But if, they, if the pilots weren't there, they would shut everything down in Columbia, hold, hold oh. it at, at the coast. That's a pretty... 24 hours, no cool. bottle to throttle if you're a pilot. Right. So you, got, you, you, have, you, can, cool. you can watch their yeah. clock by that. They had a control center that I got into. We, I was with one of my Colombian buddies, and we were duck hunting and got hit by a bad, real bad storm. And we had to go into this place between uh, uh, Barranquilla and Cartagena and, uh, you know, kind of walk in this ocean, brackish water and something. And it, and it was the control center that assessed all this information coming in from Panama Information coming from the ships, Colombian ships out at sea, fishing boats out at sea, of where the where the cutters were, were they seeing any airplanes, were they seeing all that came in, and they had it on big boards up on the wall, um, as as to the intel on where the U.S. forces were. Wow. So, how is it today? I mean, are the drugs a lot less than it was? Are they still coming in? They're still here. You know, there was a time. Undercover, I was paying eighty thousand dollars a key. Um, now it's about forty thousand in Miami. Um, so it's cheaper, which means there's a bigger supply. So more's coming. So they're get they're getting it in containers. You know, there's millions of container ships on every coast, every port. Uh, a lot know. of drugs. Well, you still yeah. get a job in the war on drugs. You could, yeah. but marijuana obviously it's legal in most of America. Yeah. So that's probably not being shipped in anymore at the at the rates it was. Well, they can get better quality and and more quantity down there. So, but you know they're not bringing in a million pounds or five hundred thousand pounds at a time. What's your take on federal federalizing marijuana in the United States? Well, if it makes money, I really don't care. Um, I don't think you can legalize drugs just like you can't give everybody a gun to walk around. Um, you know, these people get enough of this wild drug, you know, be it meth or be it uh, crack or whatever. You know, I mean, one of the main bikers that I, that I caught, the first guy, he was absolute drug addict, drunk, crazy, shoots people, got shot twice with me. And uh, he said, you know, if I knew how bad this crack was, I never would have touched it. And he couldn't put it down. And that's some dangerous stuff. Wow. Anything else, Kevin, before we sign off? Do you think that the government looks the other way to keep people employed in the business? I mean, a lot of people work for, this is always a question I kind of have. They're like, these drug agencies. You got your, you got the DEA and the FBI has a drug unit and the sheriff has a drug unit and probably the Southfield police has a drug unit. And I, it's, and it seems like maybe it's a lot of overlap. I don't know, but it's a lot of jobs, a lot of people. And I just wonder, you know, with the technology and, you know, we can stop terrorism or slow it down or keep it off our soil do, do you think if we wanted to we could keep drugs out or do you think it's just a look the other way thing i think you're just keeping the pressure on it and making it harder just just like if somebody's threatening to kill somebody you harden the target and and you can't really stop it because they can always pick the time and place and 
degree of force that they want to act with. But I think you've got to keep the pressure on drug dealers. They'd be out of control and they get wild and shoot each other, shoot everybody else. And, um, you know, and, and most of these agencies like, you know, like Oakland County, usually they have some local guys working with them and, and, and an exchange of information and, and it all helps, but it's not, they don't come up with just drug crimes. They come up with everything related to drug crimes, B and E's, murders, uh, kidnappings, car thieves, uh, you know, they're, I guess if there's a demand, there's always going to be a way, someone willing to uh, figure out how to feed the demand. Yeah, it's easy money, you know. Well, I appreciate you coming in today, Ned. I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to your podcast when it's out. And I'm glad that you're finally getting a nice, long series that you're able to tell the stories. The interviews are going to be fascinating. Um, I appreciate you, t- you sharing your story with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. And if any listeners out there need some badass to protect you in another country or even on the streets of Detroit. Or Southfield. Uh, or Southfield, right. <laughs> LSS Consulting. LSS Consulting, Ned Timmons, and uh, we'll put his information in our show notes. Um, but thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for watching another episode of Open Mic with Kevin Dietz and Ned Timmons from LSS Consulting. We had a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share it, subscribe, like, and stay tuned for another episode coming up real soon. Thanks.